I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. It, it's quiet right now. Anyway, um, all right, so I'm setting out to talk about the um, Netflix series, which is currently number eight in the U.S. right now. I don't know what it is globally, but it's number eight right now um, in the U.S. And it's called, the series I'm talking about is um, Black Mass. But the reason why I think I may not, I have a lot of things that I want to talk about right now because they're, it's, it's the timing. It's the timing, right? So I, <laughs> I want to circle back around on Squid Game because not only is Squid, Squid, Squid Game number one, still in the U.S. on Netflix, but it's number one globally. And everybody's talking about why. And I just, I don't think it's complicated. I don't think it's complicated why. It is an innovative, albeit dark, and a little bit reveling in the grimness of affluent people and their boredom and poor people and their exasperation or not their exasperation, but their willingness to do just about anything. Like it's the extreme of both lived experiences, right? I talked about this in the last episode. It's the extreme of both lived, uh, of lived scenarios. What would you do if you had all the money in the world? Would you bet it? Would you play the highest stakes game ever, um, where you would literally bet on the lives of individuals. And what would you do being poorer than poor? Would you risk your life, literally risk your life? The odds of the game, only one person wins. You are one of 456 people. 400 plus, I can't remember the numbers anymore. Um, but what would you, would you enter this high stakes, stakes is high game where you have a one in 450 whatever chance of dying? Would you do it anyway because the stakes are high, equally as high in your real life? Would you do it anyway? And yeah, like I still stand by my assessment or how I felt at the end of the show, even though I think the show was innovative. Like I still feel the way I do, but the show is innovative. And it goes back to some of the things, something I've been saying for years at this point on this particular show, which is. Baby, when a thing is good, it's good everywhere. And Hollywood, and I'm saying Hollywood because that's my vantage point, but I'm quite sure Nollywood and Bollywood and any of the other entertainment centers, major entertainment centers in a country could probably take a note. Even even K-dramas, let's be for real. Even Well, even the um, Korean film industry, I'm, I'm quite sure not everything that they turn out is good stuff, right? Because every... Every film exec, every TV exec, 
every think tank probably now wants to recreate, especially even even in um, Korea, probably wants to recreate the success of the Squid Game. We've, at this point, you've heard the story of the director. This film, the script for this film languished for decades. He barely, or at least a decade, he was barely able to finish the thing because he was so broken, nobody would give him a chance. Now, the moral of the story that everybody else is is panning around, certainly in the U.S., I I don't know what the story, the moral of the story is where you are, especially if you're listening, you're a U.K. listener. I don't know if the same moral is coming across to you, but what's coming across to me is that, oh, just persevere. You could do it. Believe in yourself. Believe in your dreams. And then, like, that's the prevailing moral that comes out of that, right? After the, the, you know, the director said how long it had taken to get this baby to for which he had to sell the computer, which he was writing the script on for like 300 some odd dollars or something like that, just to get rent, just to get, just to get money to get by. And now he's made billions per his, maybe not billions, millions per his Netflix contract. Netflix has made billions. Let's be for real. Um, but yeah, that, so the moral is just hang in there, believe in yourself, you know, don't give up on your dreams. If you really want to take it to a religious space, you know, you know, <laughs> Any, uh, anyway, you get, you get the idea that, you know, what God has for, like in the religious space, what God has for you has, is meant for you. And if you're not standing, you're not standing in receipt, you're not standing, if you're not in a place to receive your blessing, you're going to miss your blessing. So hang in there because maybe you're not always ready for your blessing. There, there's a spiritual element to it. I'm not saying that the spiritual element, being a spiritual person, I'm not saying that that spiritual element isn't there. I'm saying I reject the idea that just hang in there, you'll persevere is the only moral here. Is, is the, it's, it's, no, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that the moral of this story is not placed solely on the responsibility of the person that has the dream. It's not on the dreamer. The dreamer needs to stick to the work that will ultimately bring that, that dream into reality. But this is an indictment on the system that we're standing in. Why is it that a creative person has to, like something as creative as this, even the flaws that I really have with it, or the issues that I have with this, with this show, even after all of that, the moral for me just, just isn't, oh, persevere. It's like, why, <laughs> why would this person have to languish that long? Like, why isn't there a pipeline? Why isn't there, well, I know the answer to the question that I'm asking, but why isn't there something like an incubator that, or, or some sort of place where creatives like this, this writer could be nourished? More, but like more, I'm sure there are writing labs and things like that, but I'm sure there's a lot I don't know about the, the uh, entertainment business, but it's just the moral to me just can't be persevere. Of course we have to persevere. Of course you're turned down 
and you keep moving. But like, let's talk about the system that you have to persevere through. Not this don't have to be. It don't. It don't have to be this way. Is 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 where I'm coming at it from. And and I've heard this sentiment before, so it's not unique to me. But there's something pitiful about the fact that he had to sell his computer. And maybe that's apocryphal. I don't know. Maybe that's just something he's embellished. Maybe he didn't have to sell his computer because he was solely focusing on this. Maybe there was a series of uh, other unfortunate events that led him to adjust his budget to downsize, right? But that's, again, hardly the point. What we know, what, what we know is that we'll focus on the U.S. Hollywood. We'll focus on Hollywood. Hollywood will turn out five of the same movie. Five of the same movie. And I'm not talking about sequels. I'm literally saying different movies with the same premise, similar looking cast. We'll turn it out if the first one was successful. We'll do four others just like it. And before you start pulling in the comic book piece, the comic book piece, that's more like of a continuation. Now, well, I, but just like any other comic, like the thing, the thing I like about comic books is that, you know, you read the series because it's telling a story. It's a linear story for the most part, for the most part, the stories are linear. There's a beginning, middle and end. Um, There are branches to that linear story that all tie back together. I don't mind that whatsoever. You know what I don't, what I do mind? You creating a a sequel, a a series out of something that was meant to be one movie, Fast and the Furious. Like, or you keep making reboots of something that was, that ended and was you keep making reboots of something that was good while it lasted. And you want to keep, you, you let five years, 10 years go by, maybe even 20, although Hollywood, you know, I don't know. Like sometimes it's, it's rare for that much time to go by, but like, will the Wonder Years reboot? Like it's been over 20 years, almost 20 years at this point. Now, mind you, I'm not saying, I'm looking back on it now and while certain sitcoms and, and um, network TV, excuse me, network TV shows just are my thing. I can appreciate what they are to other people. And so I recognize that the Wonder Years were Black um, means a lot to some people, to a lot of people. And so I'm not going to diss that, but it's just, why couldn't there be a totally unique story? Why did it have to be based on the premise of the Wonder Years? Do you know what I mean? Like, why did, why couldn't it have been something completely different? We, we've got the talent, but it's people like the director of Squ- or the writer of Squid Game sitting out there just not getting in the door because somebody's pitching the 30th version of something that was successful. And because Hollywood wants to make money at the end of the day, they just pick up that script and, and say boo to the other one. And then you have to persevere. Then you set up the story where you have to persevere. Anyway, I just I love the attention the show is getting. I've, I just love, the, I love it when films are wholly different to what is coming out of the mainstream um, movie centers, entertainment centers, but it's, or if it's coming out of that, it's still completely different than the, re, than the stuff that's been coming, that, than the other things that have been coming out. And 
again, for the flaws that I do believe the Squid Game has, I have, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed the roller coaster that it took me on. I did. Even, yeah. Despite it, it, even, even with its flaws, I still enjoyed the roller coaster ride that it took us on. And, and what I'm enjoying right now is, so now black folks, again, black Twitter is a wonderful place. It, well, it is a beautiful place that has some nasty people in it sometimes who just take you down a path, or at least my little corner. Sometimes I, I really have to get up out of my corner of black Twitter and go to another one because whew, I will circle back around to that in a minute. Actually, no, this is a good segue. I will, I need to, sometimes I need to step out of my little corner of black, black, uh, black Twitter because sometimes those jokers be so negative. I'll get to the negative piece in a minute, but the times when they're positive, when I love my little corner of black Twitter, they're talking about stuff like, um, what would the black version of, like, if, (laughs) if it was a bunch of black folks, it was a black version of Squid Game. What or black American? I think from their perspective, they're saying black American, but ultimately, it's. I'd love to understand what the diaspora version of, like what what the South African version of uh, Squid Games is. What the what the, what games would you play in the Nigerian version of Squid Games? By the way, I really need to get more into Nollywood uh, movies because some of these movies are so like. When I tell you some of the drama, like I've been seeing clips on Twitter and um, Instagram of some of these the ridiculous dramas, and I feel like I'm missing out. I don't do, I don't really love cheesy soap operas, but maybe I'm missing out. You know what I'm saying? Maybe I'm denying myself of a treat. But anyway, I want to know what the Nollywood version, or not Nollywood, non-Nollywood. I want to know what the like creative, like what creative director. Like if, and again, and, and I recognize right now I'm kind of doing like a, I'm, I'm, I'm saying the exact opposite of what I was saying before. I'm not saying that someone in Nollywood or a Nigerian director or writer should do a Nigerian version of Squid Games. For fun, let's pretend that there's a Black American version, Nigerian, American, uh, Nigerian version of Squid Games. What would the game be? And in my little corner of Black Twitter, um, folks are like, uh, spades. <laughs> if you, and I, I, I cackled when I saw that. I cackled. I cackled because if you know, like I know, I'm surprised more people haven't been, haven't, haven't gotten seriously injured playing spades. I mean it, baby. I don't play with spades. Like, I will play if I really know it's a friendly game. And even when it's a friendly game. And when I'm, let me just back up. Let me explain to you what I mean by friendly. What I mean by friendly is they recognize that, you know, we just playing this. The players that I'm with might not have the best skill sets, but I'm going to get mine off. And I'm going to talk trash, too, at the same time. But it's not going to be to the level where, like... It's not going to be a cutthroat game. We not we not playing well. We're, there's a little bit of the dozens in there, but we not going we not going to go that hard, right? Um, anytime I'm playing with my mama, my sister, my husband, that's about as friendly as our game gets. Like they're still trash talking. There's even though you're not supposed to, there's talking across the table. 
there's jokes being had, but it's still light. But baby, when it comes to my sorors, playing with my sorors, playing with my hubby's, uh, some of my, my hubby's family members, I would rather not. Uh, friends, I would rather not. Church members, now I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Some of the coldest spades players, this the cutthroatest the spades players I know are right in my church. Um, because at the end of the day, it is not about you know, your relationship, your spiritual relationship. It is, it is about your aptitude and your, your serious, how, your, your, how serious you're taking this game. And what you need to know is spades is a big deal. And so if there was a black version of squid game, or there were games that were familiar to black folks in squid game, wouldn't be children's game. Um, or at least a, a game that would be a part of it would be spades and you better figure it out. Um, I know that's kind of against the premise of Squid Game, Squid Game because those games were simple, simple children's games with high stakes, right? I just know that spades would make it, spades would make it. Um, but Red Light, Green Light is so doggone inter, uh, uh, that thing, like everybody played Red Light, Green Light. And to be honest with you, I'd, I'd probably be the one, if I got caught up in, in the squid game in like real life, I'd be the one. I'd be the one to be like, oh, I got this. Play red light, green light. I'd give it my, I'd give a good old college try. Anyway, but I digress. So that, so that was a conversation that was happening in, uh, shoot, this last week um, in my little corner of black Twitter. There's another conversation though that was happening and another reason why sometimes I have to come out of my little corner of Black Twitter and find another one. Um, because, okay, so let me just, there's two things that I want to talk about kind of in one. So sometimes my little corner of Black Twitter and Black Instagram can be very conspiracy theory. Like I'm talking about, baby, the rabbit hole is deep, dear. And also like big conspiracy theorists. And then the other side of this thing is like so doggone hateful. Like it's hateful. I found another way to describe it. So I'm going to jump in here really quick um, and share a little note that I had some technical difficulties recording this session that I didn't realize I had until I went to edit the thing together. And so apparently about 10 minutes of this conversation is cut and I, it's gone. It's deleted. I, I think I might've accidentally pressed pause and then play again, but I didn't know when I had done any of those things. I, I was on one of those rambles, but anyway, in this next moment, I'm going to pick up toward the end of the ramble. Basically, I was talking about the part that you missed. And maybe it's a godsend that you missed it. But I was basically talking about how negative my corner of Twitter has become. And sometimes I just have to check out because in identifying, in outing people or, or naming, putting a name to negative practices or people who are doing harmful things to community and communities, 
Sometimes the people in my little corner of Twitter and on social media end up adding to the death speech that is kind of floating around in the atmosphere. And I know that sounds really hippy-dippy and super like weird spiritual, but I, I believe words do mean things. I also believe that, you know, what you say has an impact, just like what a celebrity says has an impact. And sometimes it's, it's like we can call out people who are tyrants. We can call them to justice. We can demand action. We can move, we can make things happen so that they are brought to account. But the, it's one thing to say that this person has been, has endorsed a lot of things or, or been the catalyst behind a lot of actions that have negatively impacted me and my community. It's a whole nother thing to turn around and just speak death, man. Cause it's, it's, that's that's a lot. And and again, I recognize that even in me. Like if a person's mad, a person's mad and they say whatever. Like you cannot begrudge a person who's grown up in a war-torn environment under a a, a tyrant not to wish them not to rejoice at their death, right? Like you like and and that's an extreme situation and I'm not begrudging a person who at the death of a tyrant, now their family is free or at least they may, it's, it's likely that they'll be free because the head of this terroristic organization is gone. Like, I'm not going to begrudge a person in that circumstance. It's just, I think it, when it comes to Twitter, and this will lead, this will, this piece will lead into where I pick up in the piece that I, in the recording that I actually still recorded, um, which is, you know, you can, it's, we've said this for, since the internet was around, right? We have said it since forever. But people can hide behind social media. And it's interesting how people even hide behind, like they can be on, so it's one thing to hide behind a, a screen on Twitter, Facebook, and type whatever. You don't have to have your face shown. You have a burner account. Um, but IG going live on IG or going live on any of the platforms and saying whatever, I can see why there's an appeal to it because, you know, only a few folks might be following you and those people, or not even a few folks, the people who are watching you tend to agree with you. And so even if you're saying something that is wholly ridiculous, they can would agree with you and you don't know the ramifications of, or like how deep what you're saying can impact someone because you're just being one-sided, you're not having any other point of view being shared, you're literally just spewing out of you. You literally just, it's stream of consciousness. I can appreciate how that happens, but at the same time, it's like, whoa, do you know how many people you're, <laughs> like you can delete it all you want, baby, but screen back, screen grabs are real, recording people, when people, people can find anything that you've tried to delete including those statements that you regret saying. And it's just so wild to me. It's one thing for somebody to put something in, in a written form. It's another thing for them to go on camera and say it with their whole chest and not deal with the consequences until after they've done the thing. It's, like, it's wild to me how easy people can just 
devolved to their basic selves behind social media. And this leads into the point that I'm about to make when I when the recording resumes. Okay, so this is kind of janky and and wonky, and I'll do better next episode. But um, that was my main point was just like, sometimes I just have to check out of my own little corner of Twitter, specifically black Twitter, because the the hate, not hate speech, but just the vitriol and the tone of the conversation is is laced with death. And I just don't I don't want to, I don't want that in my, I don't want that in my mind. I don't want that in my, my space. So anyway. And there's a lot of death speech over there. And I think that's indicative of our times. I also think it's indicative of the platform. You could literally, and I can't stress this enough. It's the oldest point ever been made. Certainly a point that the uh, Monica Lewinsky's new documentary, um, 15 Minutes of Shame, brings up, but like in the under, behind the anonymity of a handle, and everybody talks about this, right? Behind the anonymity of an anonymity, the anonymity of a handle, or sometimes not because celebrities even, there's something, there's something, there's a detachment that takes place in social media that allows you to say some things that you might not say in your, in your normal life. You might not feel the courage to say to a person's face, to a camera, what you will say on a live, in a tweet, in a TikTok, on a post, you know? And so, it's like regarding this. So, so I'm 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 having this thought, right? And 15 minutes of fame. One of the things that it's saying is, it's actually talking about cancel culture, but cancel culture that works. <laughs> and so, what we know is, most of the time, cancel culture. If you can talk about cancel culture, if you can complain about te- cancel culture. And you've had a platform, like, yeah, if you've had a a monstrous platform for a while and you can complain about being canceled, you actually haven't been canceled. And that's a point that is not specific. That's not a new idea. Several people have talked about this before, but just to put a fine point in it, if you've never understood, if a person can complain, if a major if a major um, figure can complain about being canceled, you actually haven't been canceled, baby. There are very few people that have actually been canceled and canceled is a relative term. Look at Harvey Weinstein, look at um, Bill Cosby, who are still able to get out statements, who are still able to communicate with people. Look at R. Kelly. All three of the people that I just mentioned Bill Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, they have all been sentenced and served. Bill Cosby was released, but served, what, five years? Which is way less than he should be serving. Uh, He should still be in prison. Um, But Harvey Weinstein is still in prison and and still getting new charges. And... um, which does not surprise me. It just, it, the sheer magnitude of the devastation that this man has left in his, in his wake is just 
tremendous and also scary when you consider he's not the only one in Hollywood. He's not the only tyrannical Hollywood exec who probably needs to take account and be be called to account. Um, But R. Kelly finally getting, finally getting um, justice served to him. It's not enough to take his money. He's got to go to jail. He's got to go to prison, which is where he is. But like, so we have examples of people being canceled. Matt Lauer. Um, it's a few other people whose names are escaping me right now, but it's a few people who've been canceled. But if you are able to complain about being canceled, baby, you're not actually canceled, Dave Chappelle. You're actually not, but you've not been canceled, honey. Um, you've got critics is what you've got, honey. But if you, if it's not stopping your money, it's not stopping your bag. Um, you're still able to do the things you want to do. Then you're not canceled. What you are is a grumpy old man at this point. And I'm not trying to be ageist, but he's just like, I, when I tell you, I used to love the Chappelle show. I look back on it now. And there was some very, he was very home, um, home, um, misogynistic and homophobic but like funny you know what I mean um you know and the jokes you you laughed at as a 20 year old are not the jokes hopefully are not the same jokes you laughing at at 30 or pushing 40 but I just it's so wild to me because he keeps like you know what I compare him to a Cat Williams I compare him to Eddie Murphy you can't evolve, baby. You're not that funny to begin with. And Dave Chappelle ain't funny to me no more. He's, he, to be honest with you, I never really watched his stand-up because it just felt like, it felt like some old dude that was kind of funny, but like didn't really let off a bunch of funny jokes. But like, if you had a similar sense of humor than him that you got it, like you thought it was funny too, but like that dry humor stuff, like he didn't always be saying stuff funny. It was just the, his delivery, right? And so, okay, bet. When his, the reason why I think his, his TV show, The Chappelle Show, was so successful, but then he walked away from it because it was like, he saw the flaws in it. Not the same flaws that I saw, but he's, or that most people saw, but he, or people back, looking back on it now, like he didn't see that he was homophobic. He didn't see that he was misogynistic. Um, but whatever, he saw the flaws in it. He was more so looking at, anyway, I'm not even going to rehash what he's saying his, Whatever his argument was for walking away from Chappelle's show, maybe that's how he felt then, but that certainly can't be how he felt now, especially when you consider his production team and who's paying him and who's his audience. Like, I I can't believe that the the critique that he had back when he left the Chappelle show is the same. He believes the same thing. He just can't. Like, let's be for real. You have eyes as well as I do. You know who his audience is, and it ain't mostly black people. Let's be for real. There's no way that he could be a, a number three in the U.S. and only be talking to black people. Not every black person has a, a Netflix account, nor do they want to be watching Netflix like that. Like, let's be for real. His audience is largely white male, white and male, and cis male at that, cisgender male at that. Which was one of the things, if I'm not mistaken, one of the reasons why he walked away from the Chappelle show, right? Because the jokes he was making, he wasn't making the right people laugh, which is what he, he was doing this to connect with his community. Baby, baby, 
baby. You don't feel that way now, do you? Feel very different, do you? Money too good, huh? Anyway, I really don't. I was on the border anyway. I thought I thought the Chappelle show was funny at the time. Looking back on it, it's not as funny anymore. Like, you know, you know the funniest skits? The funniest skits included Charlie Murphy because Charlie Murphy took it to another level. Him being Prince, him being Rick James, and even the Rick James piece isn't as funny anymore when you consider Rick James's violent history and who he was in his life and how he was to women in his life, right? It was funny, but like not as funny when you consider the story that you're actually telling there. But anyway, like, but can't, but my thing is, baby, if you can talk about cancel culture in your uh, a special that you're putting on that you're getting millions of dollars for, baby, you're not canceled. Not in the least bit. And at this point, you're making fun of some, you're making fun of, of something that is actually happened to people that, as we know from the documentary, 15 Minutes of Shame, that don't have the platform that you have, that other people tell their story And the thing about it is in each one of these scenarios, and I have been guilty of playing part in at least one of them, being a part of the mob in at least one of them. Someone else is telling their story. And then once somebody else tells their story, it's gone. Ain't Jack you can do about it. And then the anonymity of social media or or how social media empowers you to just talk that talk that you wouldn't normally talk in real life to a person's face, because the consequence is a little bit more real then, a little bit more dire, you know. It, the lives that you can ruin based on assumptions, quick, quick assumptions you can make in a, in a quick scroll, and then you will keep scrolling. You can literally tear somebody's lives apart in a, in a tweet, especially if that baby becomes viral. Which, if you watch 15 Minutes of of Shame, it's a really smartly done documentary. Um, I have way more compassion for the people mentioned in the documentary than I thought I would have. I have way more compassion for Monica Lewinsky than I ever had when I was a child. I didn't have any compassion for Monica Lewinsky. And again, I I can admit that. I've, over the show, I've shared how... I spent a lot of time trying to unlearn behaviors that I thought were normal and acceptable when I was younger. I'm actively doing that in my marriage as we speak. Some of the things that I used to think and that I used to do, recognizing, you know, when you got the magnifying glass up there, um, baby, what were you doing? What were you doing, right? So, like, we all need to renew our minds. We all need to examine ourselves. And I just, like, I'm not going to talk about the 15 Minutes of Shame documentary. I think you should, I think you should absolutely watch it because it's interesting. I just don't have a ton to say about it. The only thing I will say is one of the people in 15 Minutes of Shame whose life was ruined by, um, being canceled, actually being canceled. Every one of these people on 15 Minutes of Shame, 15 Minutes of Shame were canceled by a group of people. Now, the outcomes from some of these um, situations are a little bit better than others. There's only one that actually has a great outcome. The other ones have okay outcomes or pending outcomes, right? But none of these are like, even the one where it was a good outcome, 
it was at the cost of this person's well-being. It's it's took a huge toll on them. So they made lemonade out of lemons, but boy, that that lemonade's still a little bitter. It's not super sweet. It's very bitter. Still. It's a little it's a little bitter still. Right? And so I, yeah, so watch that documentary. It's on HBO Max, you know. Watch it how you watch it. Um but I do think it's worth your time because one thing about it, I literally have changed my whole viewpoint on Monica Lewinsky because looking back on it, that woman was what, 18, 19, maybe she was 20, with this 40-something-year-old man who was the president of the United States of America, sitting president of the United States of America, and she was pilloried for being the thing that, that the wedge that came between him and, and Hillary. She was perceived by women, everyone, most people, as the culprit there, not even realizing the power dynamics, not even realizing that she was chose, not even realizing that if you were chose by the most powerful person in your country, how would you respond? If you were looked on in admiration and, 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 and lustily, let's be for real. Let's bring it all the way down. Let's be all the way for real. If you were looked at as a section, as, as an object of desire for the most powerful person in the country, you 18, 19, 20 years old, you mean to tell me you wouldn't engage, but would that make you the, the culprit? No, the power, you have no power there. The only thing you have is your looks and your beauty and your attractiveness to that person. That's all you got and your proximity to them. You, and then you making them your, the only thing you have outside of your, what makes you attractive to this person is your proximity to them and your ability to be available to them. But that in itself really is power from them, right? Because now you want to be available to this person to be their object of desire, which is a piece of their power. That's their power. It's the only way that that works. But we talked about her as a society. I'm not saying that there weren't some smart people, intelligent people who were feminist, who were, and I even shut it. Like, I've got to get over using the word feminist because it, growing up, feminist meant white women. And white women were not in my, and white women weren't for black women. White women weren't for women of color. White women were for women. That's why they never talked about, they just talk about women and what we know is in film and TV, women is white woman in, in American TV, American film, American media. When, when you're saying woman, typically the image that you show is a white woman, right? So, and, and there's a lot of history behind that. So I'm not wrong in saying that, but I just have to get over the, I have to get over my apprehension of saying the feminist because there were women who were pro-women regardless of the sexual orientation. And there were people who had, well, there were women who identify as women and there were, there were people who identify as women and people who identify as men who were supportive of Monica, that just the voices were drowned out by the sheer vast number of people, even myself at a young age, who were in opposition to Monica. And I regret being in opposition to her because she had no power here, yet she was, she was, she was purported to be the Jezebel here, the one that had all the power. 
the one that had all the power that seduced the most powerful person in the United States. And it's from there that we recognize, and he should have been canceled, and he wasn't. He came under scrutiny and, he, and, and, and came out clean, smelling fresh as a rose, right? And then, so it's like on the other side of it, you come to Dave Chappelle now, it's not the same situation, but he is consistently being transphobic, homophobic, misogynistic, and stupid. Like making those comments that he makes, that he can make, offend a lot of people, and it's not even funny. You can be a comedian and find innovative ways to be funny, baby, but if you don't want to, probably because you can't. Let's just be for real. Cat Williams done been through some things, done seen some stuff, done offended a lot of people not being funny, let alone while he was being funny, offending people. But guess what? Dude's comedy evolves. Dude's comedy evolves. Dude's comedy has evolved. Um, um, Eddie Murphy, dude offended a lot of people when he was younger and has said and continues to say, I don't even watch Raw anymore. I don't even, I'm not even, I don't even watch a lot of my old stuff because every time I watch it, I cringe on how I behaved, on the things that I truly believed at the time. I truly believe that. And while I don't believe that now, I don't enjoy watching that stuff because that was somebody that I'm not anymore. What can you do except respect that? And how then can you say that Eddie Murphy is a comedic genius? How then can you give uh, um, Cat Williams his flowers as he's evolving, as he's showing and proving that he's different and his comedy can change with him, that you just, we look at a Dave Chappelle talking about he's the last holdout. There's nothing endearing about that to me. It's, it's loathsome and uncreative and stubborn and unimaginative, which is the same as uncreative. Um, and get, he, in the process, he getting millions of dollars for it. Millions of dollars for it because his audience isn't rational thinking people. Or if you are a rational thinking, that was, that was disrespectful. I didn't mean to be dis, as disrespectful as, I didn't mean to be disrespectful, but what I'm saying is his audience don't care. Also, his audience don't look like me. And once he comes to terms with that, I think he can reconcile all those oxymorons that are within him, especially as it relates to his comedy, especially as it relates to his output to the world. Like you can talk about black people all you want to and champion for black people all you want to. But if you are pandering not to black people, if you're doing all of that, pandering to people that aren't black, like who is it for? Like what is the performance for? Like you need to recognize that it is a performance. I don't know. Anyway, I do know. I do know. I'm disappointed. I tell you what, man, like to live long enough and not that I'm even super de duper old, but like to live to see people that you admired turn out to be completely different than what you ever imagined is weird. I really miss because the thing about it is I don't I love evolution. I love evolution. Look at Miss Janet. Look at how her career has evolved. Look at how she has evolved. Look at, um, shoot, there's so many, it's hard to, I've already talked about artists who've, who've evolved, entertainers who've evolved. I love evolution. What I don't love is you being stuck where you were. 
Because that's painful to watch. Or you are like, you have evolved into something that you used to hate or that you used to talk about. In Kanye West, I'm still ain't, I still ain't over that. I don't care how long it's going to be. That transformation that he's gone through it hurts to this day because he was so impactful and influential in my my early my my early 20s. He's very influential because it sounded like me. It sounded like what I was aspiring for. Now, mind you, there's a lot of flaws in what I was aspiring to be, who I was aspiring to be that back then. There's a piece of me that's still left over from my early 20s, but that's the piece that was better than the other coats that I was putting on, than the other armor, the other pieces of me that I was putting on that was just the piece of me from my 20s that survives is that idealist who at her core understands her spirituality understands what she what she's aspiring for out of a walk, out of a, her spiritual life, what she's trying to achieve in her acts, in her works and her deeds. That part of me from my 20s still survives to this day and I try to nurture it. And I'm actually in the process of just renewing my mind because it's been a minute. You know, I'm in a, I'm a point of renewal at this moment. And... I'm renewing my mind to see how I can continue to be that resource that I thought I ever always wanted to be in the community. I'm renewing it even now. And anyway, it's just, what am I saying? I just, I've watched a lot of media, a lot of media, and there's a whole lot more to come. And, but this whole cancel thing just really got me thinking because in my point of renewal, I'm, I think I'm at the point where I need to stop following people. I need to, I need to purge people from my socials purge people from I need to renew my mind on my approach to certain people in my life at the moment um, because I don't know if that's going to serve me I don't know if that's serving me at the end of this renewal period I've got to slough off some things that maybe some bad habits that I've picked up obviously and then also I just need to renew my mind on my approach to certain relationships Like maybe those relationships that were serving me aren't serving me. Or maybe they're as the the main relationships that I want to cultivate, maybe me being able, my ability to cultivate them better and, and, and evolve that relationship is being impacted by these other hangers on, which sounds very cold, but like, baby, we've got to go through and do an inventory. We do. A self inventory is where you start. You start with a self inventory. I don't know. Where am, where am I going? I'm all over the place. Welcome to Bay Baltimore. I tend to veer. I tend to meander. But anyway, um, it actually kind of makes sense if you think about what I'm going to talk about. I am actually going to get there. I've decided I am going to talk about the show because Black Mass is interesting, albeit very devoid of diversity. There's only a people, uh, a few specks of color. It just happens that the specks of color in it happen to be lead characters or very important characters. But, you know, Netflix just cannot, just cannot get away from being mostly homogenous. But um, anyway, but the story itself is interesting. Once you get past the homogeny of the show, and you start talking about the story, 
the conclusion that this thing comes to is a little bit different than the conclusion, or at least one of the main characters, actually all of the main characters come to a conclusion that's a little bit different than what I see, or at least the movie makes you want to come to a conclusion that is different than the one I came to. At the result, I say it's a movie, it's a series, it's a TV, it's a series, it's a series on, um, on Netflix right now. It's number eight. Um, as of the time of the recording, it's number eight in the U.S. I don't know where it is across uh, the globe. But there is a story here that is biblical. It's not old, though, or it's not new, though. It's kind of, it's a story that's been, an aspect of a story that's been told before, which, you know, you know how I feel about stories that have been done over. But this is, this aspect of this particular story is kind of interesting to me because it plays with the spiritual notion of angels and demons. And I don't know that the story outwardly does this, but it actually absolutely identifies demons for me. And the way that they're described in the Bible, again, this is not a major point of this show because I, I want to be clear about that. But in the next segment, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it. But this show definitely talks about religion, definitely talks about your approach to spirituality. But it also really kind of turns on its head zealotry. And also, there's some really beautiful, poignant conversations about existential conversations, or at least conversations about the end that I think are super beautiful in talking about this bigger story. There's also come some, it, it's a little, it's like a disaster flick too, a little bit. It's a little bit disaster, a little bit horror, a little bit horror. It's a little bit horror. It's a horror show. I will say this. It's a horror show that has a whole lot of different concepts floating around in it, but it's not so heavy that you're just like, Oh my gosh, this is not entertaining anymore. No, no, no. It's entertaining throughout. And it also has some things that happen that just just rip your heart out. And it's frustrating because it does that thing where you get to know some characters and then some things befall those characters. And you're just like, man, sort of thing. So actually, that's the reason why I want to actually talk about this show. Because but for those those moments where you're like, oh man, or oh my gosh, those jump scares, those, I can't believe you did that moments. I don't think I'd be interested in this show. So in the next segment, I'm going to talk all about um, Black Mass and some of the concepts that are in it, even though I don't know that the show intended for these concepts to jump out, but these are the concepts that jumped out to me. Um, And then also talk about the I mean, this is gory, P.S. This show is gory. So, uh, you know, if this is not, if you don't do gore, trigger warning, if you don't do gore, if you don't do like scary, scary, well, this isn't scary, scary. It's just kind of gross and a little bit scary. Um, If you don't do that, you know, skip on. I'll talk about something else next week. But anyway, if you're still along for the ride, stay tuned because I'm going to talk all about Netflix's um, Black Mass. Okay, so let me get to the particulars of the movie first, or 
series. I binged it, so the the particulars of the series first, um, and then I'll get into what I thought about it and kind of see how it goes from there. But um, okay, so Black Mask is a seven episode horror series from Netflix that was released um, September twenty fourth, um, and it was created by Michael Mike Flanagan, uh, cinematography by Michael. Fimognari. Um, and I think the only reason why I want to just pause here is to say that we're, the one thing that you, or at least the, the average Joe, the average Joe would probably appreciate the cinematography of this, of this series. It's beautiful. It's stunning. Um, and Michael Fimog, Fimog, whatever, this guy, um, I don't know why this is so hard for me to say, Fimognari, anyway, how, great work, great work, great work, um, and it stars, and it's really interesting because, you know, when you look up the cast of certain movies, and obviously the top billed actors are the, the supposed, you know, bigger stars, bigger checks and all of that stuff. It, but sometimes in the film, the people who play the biggest role, or at least who are, have the most impactful role, aren't top billed. And so the names I'm going to read off, not all of these names are like super... It's just, it's frustrating why not everybody is in here, but um, especially since they play such a huge role, but maybe this is just the Google thing, like a Google search, and I should probably, IMDb, it's hard to say who actually played a more pivotal role in the film when you look at their cast list too, but anyway, Kate Siegel plays Aaron Green, um, who is a love interest, who was, who was a prodigal child of this island, this sea island, not, not, the Sea Island, but it's like a New England Sea Island. That's what it's giving me. It's giving me very much New England, not Georgia, off the coast of Georgia or the Carolinas. Um, but anyway, she plays Erin uh, Green, who's a like a prodigal child that re- returned to the island um, to escape her past, which is ironic because she escaped the island to escape to escape that part of her past, and now she's back. Um, Zach Guilford plays Ryan Flynn, who is also a prodigal son. Um, he did the same thing. He escaped the island to, um, he escaped from the island to just to put them in his past, um, only to run headlong into a lot of, I guess the, the, the tale in this story for him is came in contact with a lot of excess because he was a tech bro, I guess. Um, and went on a drunken bender and drove and took someone's life. And so now he's back. He, he did a prison stint um, for many years. He served his time, and then now he's back. He's, he's released, and he's coming back to the main place that he initially ran from in the first place. Um, Hamish Linkletter plays Father Paul Hill, who is introduced to the island as a replacement for the old parish leader father um who has taken sick um and then yeah i mean that's in a nutshell what his character 
who his character is. Um, Alex Esso uh, plays Mildred Gunning, who is an elderly woman who's living with dementia, whose um, storyline has a very miraculous and kind of wonderful turn um, at the end. Raul Coley plays Sheriff Hassan, who is not from the island, but definitely ran away with his son um, from his old life. So you're, you're sensing a theme here. There's a lot of running away, returning, you know, scalded by the world, scalded by scalded by one situ- one bad situation or the next. And, and you know, you have people coming here. Um, and so Raul Coley plays um, Sheriff Hassan, who um, notedly, I think the most noted point about him, other than he's a widower um, of of a teenage son and a a widower who has a teenage son, um, he is Muslim and the majority of the island is not. Um, Then you have Samantha Sloyan that plays Bev Keen, who can only be described as a miserable person who clings to authority as a way to find meaning in her own life and project strength and relevance. Um, Annabeth Gish plays Dr. Sarah Gunning, who is, who plays Mildred Gunning's mother, or no, Dr. Sarah Gunning plays Mildred Gunning's daughter. Um, And she is it seems throughout the series that she is the doctor on the island. Um, and so she takes care of a lot of all the issues of the island, the health medical concerns of the island, um, and plays a pivotal role in the end of this series um, as the island comes to terms with something that has afflicted it, um, metaphorically and physically. Henry Thomas who I did, it did not realize I had known who Henry Thomas was. Um, but Henry Thomas plays Ed Flynn, who is Riley Flynn's father. Um, Henry Thomas, I'm sure anybody who's older than I am, or even if you're my same age, you're probably just swifter than I am. Henry Thomas played the little boy in E.T. The little boy, with the, the little boy who E.T. Befriended, befriended, and I could not figure out why his face was so doggone familiar to me. It was super familiar, like the entire time. And to be honest with you, I watched the entire series not knowing why he was familiar to me until I looked it up for the purpose of this episode. So, and that's when I learned that he was the father for, or he was the kid from E.T. And he's been in countless other things since then, but I was just like, there's something very familiar about his face, very familiar about his face. Um, and I will, let me just pause here for a second because the next two people... The next two people, well, actually, so Henry Thomas, who plays Ed Flynn, and uh, Kristen Lehman, who I've never, I don't recognize her work before. I don't think if I've seen it, I didn't recognize her in it. She plays Annie Flynn. So Ed and Annie are married, and they're the parents of um, Riley Flynn. In this whole series, you get the sense that this town and I'm finished. There's there's one other person that I want to note, and she doesn't even have the picture here when I'm looking, but it's Anara Simone, who plays Lisa. Lisa is a huge, she's a pivotal character in this thing, in this series. And um, Igmi 
Rigney, oof, that's his name, Igby Rigney. All right, Igby Rigney plays Warren Flynn, who is Ed and Annie Flynn's son too, and the younger brother of Riley Flynn. Um, Warren Flynn, Warren and Lisa. It's interesting that he has a full name, and we don't know Lisa's last name. Anyway, um, Warren and Lisa. So remember I told you that Dr. Sarah Gunning helps to, helps to, um, helps the the island heal from a metaphorical, but then also physical illness, um, of which only Lisa and Warren escape from. Only them, only they, only they escape from this illness, um, and anyway, it's really ironic because, not ironic, it's just they have the biggest piece of this thing to me. They start out, we, we meet them in the very beginning. We're, I think they're, we're, they're among the first two people that we really get to see interact with each other and you recognize they have a bond. And then they are the last two people that we see at the end um, still having that bond intact. Um, but let me go back. Ed Flynn and Annie Flynn... This whole sea island, and again, I, I want to I wanna make it known here, this little island off the coast, in the Atlantic, off the coast of the, it, what I can only assume would be the East Coast, because I feel like at one point in the series, um, Riley has come back from Boston, or somehow or another, he, no, he has come back from Chicago, but somehow or another, one of the people that's talking to Riley, one of the characters talking to Riley at some point, I feel like references Boston. And it makes it seem like they say the mainland a lot, right? The mainland, which is a reference to the United States, but a particular point of entry in the United States, which I feel like is Massachusetts. I don't know why I get that other than it's northern. Because here, here's the, I, I get the sense that it's northern because typically when we, pay attention to media, to shows and movies that are set in the New England area. When you want to reference cold, when you want to reference like hard, you do gray, blue, like a gray blue as a reference to the cold. Also, it just, the, the accents that they tried to put on seem very New England. Not hardcore New England, but like very bad or if not if it's not new england it's like newfoundland well actually i don't know what the accent there is in, in newfoundland but it definitely gives me the sense of the northeast the northeast not the southeast not the sea islands where if you're not from the united states or if you're if you're from uk or you're from the united states but you're not familiar with the east coast because you grew up in the midwest or you grew up on the uh, west coast um georgia and South Carolina have islands off the coast of them where people have lived. Now, what you may not know is that those islands were traditionally where black folks lived, um, many of whom were free, um, some of whom were former enslaved people. Um, but Gullah Geechee culture is South, South Carolina, it's the Carolinas, it's Georgia, right? Mostly reference, it's, it's mostly, um, synonymous with the sea islands of South Carolina. But nevertheless, there's there are black cultures there that 
um, black, well, it's, it's black cultures that are connected, um, more closely connected, I would say, or at least the, the roots are more prevalent in terms of the language, in terms of the food and things like that, more connected with styles and traditions of the enslaved black folks that came across the Atlantic, right? Um, like that's the whole big piece of it. That's why the language, the, the speech pattern is different. That's why the phrasing is, is slightly different, um, to many African-American vernacular speech patterns, right? Um, anyway, but I just wanted to point that out there because I, I swear to you, a lot of people just don't rec- recognize that there are whole islands off the coast of Georgia, off the coast of uh, the Carolinas, where there are whole communities of fortunately, many of which are under attack by um, venture capitalists who are trying to return to take the land on those islands and turn it into resorts for rich people. Um, but anyway, but there are also islands off of the coast in the north, um, on the northeast. And everybody's familiar with Martha's Vineyard, but there are other islands too. Um, and so this show gives me very much the feeling that it's set on the, it's taking place in the um, northeast coast, maybe maybe off Massachusetts or something like that. But let me let me get in. Let me just say what I wanted to say before I get into the synopsis. So Mike Flynn and Annie Flynn, to me, um, they embody what I think their characters would be in real life. Ed Flynn is a longshoreman. He's a waterman. He would he he is what um, Baltimoreans call here waterman or longshoreman. He's he does his fishing. He's not just a fisherman. He's maybe not a, maybe I'm using the phrasing wrong. Maybe he, he's a waterman. He's a waterman is where I should have stopped. Longshoreman means, might mean something else. Um, but no, he's, he's a waterman. He, he earns his living from the water. Maybe he's fishing. Mostly, mostly he's fishing. He's doing other things as well. And he, when uh, Riley was there, um, he was helping his father, you know, getting up of a morning very early, very early of a morning to get on the water and, and get the boat ready to, to set sail and, and get out and catch whatever thing or do whatever work was necessary to put food on the, on the family's table. And one thing I really appreciate about it is he's gone it's not hard for many, for most men to grow a beard, right? So in this film, he has something like a mustache or the series, he has like a mustache or whatever, but it's more than the mustache. It's literally his whole posture. For a second there, I didn't even realize who he was. And for the whole movie, I couldn't figure out why I knew him. But what I did know is that whomever this actor was, was getting lost in this character and I loved it. I believed that he was a hard seaman. I believed, or Waterman, I believed that, you know, he had trouble communicating, but it wasn't like communicating his love and affection for his son while also trying to deal with the disappointment of what Riley had done with his life. Certainly the mistakes that, well, not even the mistakes that he made, the choices that he made that led to very, 
changing people's lives forever, including his own families. Um, he felt real to me, which sometimes actors do that. Like the, the, um, Angela, no, what's her name? Davis, Davis, Viola, like the Viola Davises of the world, the um, Tom Hardys of the world, the, uh, who else escapes into that? The, um, ooh, what's her name? Kathy Bates of the world. There's another, oh, it's not Glenn Close. Glenn Close does a good job, but she's a pale white woman. Oh, she played her, oh, shoot. I can remember one of her character names. One of her character names was Tabitha. Dag on it. What was her name? Oh, it's it's escaping me. But like, Mahershala Ali, Denzel Washington, um, Alfred Wood too. Alfred Wood, and not all of Alfred Wood's movies are ex, ex, um, exemplary, or her shows are exemplary, and that's to be expected out of all of them. Let's be for real. Every anybody I just named, not all of them were exemplary. But Alfre Wooder, when I tell you, there are certain, there's another actress that, Angela Bassett. Well, most of the time, Angela Bassett. I love Angela, but most of the time. Um, that was rude. I didn't mean it. Angela, some, it's just sometimes, like in that Biggie movie, she she messed me up in that Biggie movie. I ain't forgot. Because um, it felt like she was playing, <laughs> it almost felt like she was playing herself. I don't know. Or maybe just not a really good version. Courtney B. Her husband, Courtney B. Vance, he escapes into the character. There are certain actors that escape into the character and get paid big dollars for it. But, like, they would do it if they were Al Pacino. Sometimes sometimes he'd be playing Al Pacino, but, like, or the same character. But, like, most of the time he'd be escaping. Robert De Niro, most of the time he'd be escaping. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, it's... In this in this show, not everybody was escaping into the character. Not everybody embodied the character. Henry Thomas embodied what he what I believe that Ed Ed Flynn is. A waterman heart that has trouble communicating his feelings, but knows how to work and knows is assumed this role as the head of the family trying to keep it together he recognizes what his place is and he's just trying to come to terms with the rebellion of his oldest son on the other hand Kristen Lehman she also in a very subtle way too and I'm, I'm pointing these people out because I got to be honest with you they are the only ones that I feel like escape into the character no matter how strong um Hamish Linklater's good acting was and he he does some interesting things with his with his character, and certainly he goes to some interesting places. But Kristen Kristen Lehman and Henry Thomas they truly escape. Kristen Lehman does it in a more subtle way, right? So like you get the sense that she's a waterman's wife. She knows her place as well. Here's the other thing that I really this is why I really think she escaped because have you ever seen the tension in your own family? your extended family, someone else's, where someone, and in this case, Riley, has taken someone's life, taken a teenager's life, being reckless, just completely careless after having abandoned the family. 
completely abandon the family and then goes to huge heights and then comes all the way down, right? And then they come back into, he comes back into the fold and, you know, it's a small sea sea town, right? It's a small little sea island. So there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of people on that island, which means everybody's in your business. It's like small town mentality, right? Or even in Baltimore, Baltimore is Baltimore. And you can't hardly hide, especially in your community. You can't hardly hide. Um, and you're always going to run into somebody that knows somebody so that Baltimore is a big city, but like there's a small town feel to this big city anyway. And so everybody knows your business. And so, whereas Ed Flynn kind of retreats into himself and kind of just walks his paces and goes through the motions to just try to keep body and soul together, Annie, on the other hand, and this is why I think it's so, I, she just did a great job, um, uh, Kristen Lehman she turns into this eternally hopeful forgiving and loving warm mom of a character who's you know you can make the parallel to and I think this is the show's intent was to try to make the parallel between a mother's love and the love of Christ which is certainly a, a theme in here and how she would do just about anything, forgive just about, she would forgive anything, do anything to protect her child. And we know that moms are like people who are maternal, people who are truly nurturing. That's what I mean to say, because it's not a gendered thing here. People who are truly nurturing will walk the earth to support their child, to support someone that they love. In this case, their child, right? And not a moment goes by that I don't believe that she is a mother that's been hurt by the disappointing fall from grace of her son, but yet is determined to help him pick himself back up. The minute he comes off, this is when I knew there was something that I needed to watch. In the very opening scene, we are introduced to Warren, Annie, and Ed. Somewhere abouts, like in the opening scene of the first episode, we're introduced to that the three, and they're at the breakfast table. Um, and Annie is, I think Ed is, or excuse me, Warren is trying to um, get permission to go hang out with his friends or something like that. He's being a typical teenager. Um, so he's at the table Annie's at the table, you know, doing some chatter. Um, Ed is up. I think he's up drinking his coffee, look, staring out the patio window <clears throat> over the sea because they're about to go out on the water and, or something like that. Maybe I, I, anyway, there's a breakfast scene. Um, and anyway, Warren, I guess is in, in asking if he can hang out with so-and-so his friends. Um, Annie makes a mention, you know, Riley's coming in. Riley's coming in on the first ferry. Um, so, you know, we all got to be there. We all got to make sure that we're here when he when he comes in. And Warren kind of sheepishly gives the look like, oh, boy, here it is. Like, I knew this day was coming, but, like, there's some unspokenness here that the prodigal son is returning. He's disgraced. The whole island is talking about him. And I just would like to be removed from this situation. Like, you know, a teenager who would simply like to be removed from the narrative completely because it's too much for them to bear. It's emotionally too heavy. 
And it's not even being addressed right because you have mom on the one hand and Annie being eternally happy, just just full of hope and energy and excitement and, and in spite of everything, just so grateful for her son to be home. And then on the other hand, and you have Ed, who's barely saying two things at all. And when he does in this moment, and then when he does say something, he's like, I got to be on the water or something like that. He alludes to the fact that he may or may not be there, but the optimism in Annie's voice makes it seem as if she's ignoring the fact that Ed, or she's not going to be bothered by the fact that Ed is resistant to welcoming Riley back. But she's determined to get to the other side of this family tragedy, which is Riley's going to come through this. He served his time. He's going to come in. He's going to be down, but he's going to get his head up. Ed is going to come around too. It's going to be all right. We're going to be a family again. Like you can see it. And none of that is said, by the way. Everything that I'm describing in the emotion that is being conveyed in that scene, none of that is said. The only thing that is said is, is what I just... Her saying, oh, to, to Warren, oh, make sure you're here for when Riley comes home and then directing her statement to um, Ed that, you know, you, we want to be at the ferry. And he makes, a mo- he makes a notion that he's got to be on the water or something like that. But in that moment, you, you feel all of that. You feel all of that. And I'm just like, oh, boy, let me watch this. Let me watch this core. And then I got to be honest with you for the remainder for the remainder of the series, we get less and less of them. And we get more and more of other people. And I gotta be honest with you, I wanted more of the Flynn's. I did, more than anything. We get a lot of them in the first episode, obviously, because Riley, the talk of the town, the town pariah, is coming in and he's super self-loathing. And I gotta be honest with you, while I appreciated the him being the catalyst for all of this stuff, um, for the, the whole series, basically, in a, in a way, he's like, because he's the pariah, he's also an outsider that can observe some weird stuff that begins to happen. Some abnormalities that begin to happen in the series. But like, we spend a lot of time getting to know Riley Flynn. And, and it's like, we get to know him, but we really still don't know much about him. We don't know what led to that night other than he was living high on the hog. He was drunk, drinking, driving. We don't know why he felt so reckless that that choice came there. We never find that out. We never find that out why he felt so reckless that he needed to do that. All we know is that when he comes home, it's clear that he always wanted to escape the smallness of that island town. Um, And he lost his faith when he took the, the life of that teenager person. But we don't know much else about Riley, but we spend a lot of time with Riley. We spend a lot of time with Riley trying to, you do, I will say this, you do get the sense that it, um, that Riley is trying to make himself, he's trying to acclimate back into the town again, even though he hates the fact that he's back. He's lamenting the fact that he's back. What he should be lamenting is the choices that he made, but he's lamenting the fact that the choices he made brought him back there, which feels too angsty for me too old to be angsty like that, but I I imagine that is a feeling that people do have sometimes, especially when you're not truly repentant. Um, He's also a-religious when he comes back. Uh, Well, I just said that. He's a-religious because of the circumstance. 
without taking into account his own work in that, um, which is what I just said. But anyway, and so we spent a lot of time getting to know him. We also spent a lot of time getting to know Aaron Green, who, as I said, wanted to get away from that small, claustrophobic island town um, like Riley, only we don't really learn a whole lot about her other than she ran away to get away from her mother in this and then one horse town um that one horse island town she runs into someone she connects herself with someone who is not right for her and is terrible to her she leaves with Childs the partner that she leaves doesn't know it and She's back in the one horse town, the one horse island town, a teacher now. And she left a religious, she comes back religious and trying to figure it out, not wanting to living in the same house that, that she was trying to escape all those years as a teenager, but like embracing it. Um, and anyway, so we spent a lot of time getting to know Aaron and Riley and their relationship to each other. We know that they were in love at some point when they were teenagers, but they both had to go for different reasons and they left at different times. And then they come back at different times and there's a point where there's something that's being rekindled, but it never is fully realized. There are some tender, beautiful moments. And and even though I don't think they embodied their characters like um, Henry Thomas and, and Kristen Lehman, they have one of the tenderest moments in the second to last episode of the whole series. I think it was episode six, where they're talking about, and this is foreshadowing, and I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but there is a moment where they are, actually two moments. There's one moment in episode six, and then there's another moment in episode seven, um, where Aaron is recalling the conversation, but it's doing it in a nuanced way. Um, where they're talking about what happens when you die. And Riley goes through the biological things that happen, neurological things that are happening, that he believes that are happening and what science believes is happening in, in, in your body when you die. And Erin, having, she, she comes back pregnant and due to some circumstances that happen um, through the series, she loses her child and she, in the conversation about what happens when you die after, after Riley gives this very powerful, beautiful and moving um, prose about what he believes happens or the scientific aspect of what happens and then maybe what you might be envisioning when you die. Um, and, the, and it's very interesting because they both say when, from when I die, from my perspective, what do I think, right? It's very cool how they did that because... It's just important that they made it an I statement, right? So Riley gives his I statement about what he believes happens to him when he will happen to him when he dies. And Aaron gives her I statement. And in her I statement, it's included she because she's religious and, and Riley's not religious, but she's religious. So she includes what she, her version of what heaven is and her version of what heaven is, is meeting is meeting the people that she's lost, including the child that she called Foot, and I forgot if she actually named the child, but it was supposed to be the child, 
uh, she was referencing the child that she just miscarried, um, that she hadn't quite yet got to know, but the way that she described how she would meet that child again and all the other people that she missed in her life that were good to her um, is beautiful. So they have a very beautiful moment in, in, in this in the second to last episode. They have it again in the last episode when something very dramatic has happened. And unfortunately, um, Aaron is looking like it's the end. She has another, she recalls the conversation that she had with um, Riley. And it's beautiful. Again, only this conversation has changed. Um, and, and again, it just goes back to, it's a limited series, seven, seven episodes. You could have done so much with character development with Riley and Flynn. You could have given me, a, or Aaron and Flint or Ryan, ugh, Aaron and Riley, you could have given me a reason to really root for their, for their relationship. What ended up happening in the series, though, is because of what befalls the island, they never have, the most poignant moment that they have is the moment where they're talking about what happens when I die. That's it. And then there's nothing else. So it's, it feels, this whole thing is rushed. Even though it's beautifully filmed, it feels rushed to me. So long story short, it's a sea island. And, and, and I've gone through this, but I haven't even told you the, the synopsis of the thing. At this point, you've probably Googled it already um, while I was talking, but let me just give it to you plain. So this series is about a small, isolated island community whose existing divisions are amplified by the return of a disgraced young man and the arrival of a charismatic priest. So the disgraced young man is Riley. The, um, the charismatic priest is uh, Father Paul Hill. The division that the synopsis refers to is not apparent to me in the very beginning. It's literally just Riley Flynn, the disgraced son, coming home and trying to live through that shame What and try to figure out what living through that shame feels like and the family doing the same. And then Aaron is added because she has a shame of her own. She is an unwed mother and in this very seemingly religious town where everybody knows everybody's business. Um, I say seemingly because it just feels fake. It feels like something that they're doing, you know, and I think that's the point of the, the film or the series. But anyway, um, yeah, so there really isn't a division so much as there's just pariahs. And you come to know that in the, ser- in the, in the series that this town has several pariahs. Um, and so anyway, so you, you, you had what could have been a beautiful story or well-developed beautiful story between Aaron and Riley that never really develops, except it culminates in this very beautiful conversation that they're having about their, their own deaths and then a very dramatic scene in the next episode where they're having another conversation meeting the sunrise. Um, and then there's Father Paul Hill. Father Paul Hill arrives just after Riley arrives to the, um, actually the same day. He arrives the day that Riley is supposed to, no, no. Riley arrives the day that Father Paul Hill is supposed to arrive, but Father Paul Hill arrives, I believe, either later that day or the next day. Um, Riley arrives in the morning on the first ferry. Um, And he's charismatic. He seems like he's kind of hip a little bit. 
um, and people are drawn to him because he's charismatic. Um, He's not super interesting, I gotta be honest with you. The most interesting thing about him is the turn that happens, the the secret that's revealed in episode five. In episode five, maybe it's four, but definitely by episode five, not a lot of people, but leadership knows something very interesting about uh, Father Paul Hill. Um, And actually, there is a moment, again, I I don't truly think Hamish Linkletter truly embodied what I think a, well, I don't know. I don't know too many Catholic priests. So there's that. Actually, I don't think I know any Catholic priests. Um, It just feels like he was playing what he thought a Catholic priest would be. I don't know. Um, I'm not 100% sure. It just feels a little stilted to me. It feels a little put on a little bit. But then he does this beautiful prose in describing something that happened to the old parish father, the old parish uh, pastor, basically. Um, And in describing that whole scene, it's so beautiful. Like this series, there are beautiful moments in this entire When I tell you beautiful, I mean absolutely stunning moments because of the cinematography, but also because of the acting in this film or in this series. And yet the series is kind of a little bit of a letdown. Like it's scary, y'all. It's, it's, no, it's not, it's a thriller. It's a thriller. And there's, there's vampires in this thing. I'm gonna just tell you that now there are vampires in this thing. It's called Midnight Mass for a reason, but how we get there is interesting, not as interesting as these key scenes, these key moments that I've picked out make the, it's like those, it should have been more of those important moments. When Father uh, Hill is doing this prose, he's actually doing confession to himself, basically. And, and what we get the sense of is over a series of, actually it's one, two, I think it's three episodes Over the series of three episodes, we get a glimpse into him giving confession to himself. Like he's confessing before God to himself. And this confession is broken up essentially into three different parts. I I believe it's three different parts. It might only just be two parts. But um, yeah, he's confessing. And the confession is so beautiful. Or at least the, the prose is, it's, or what am I calling this? Monologue. I meant to say monologue. I've been trying to say monologue this whole time and I said prose. Um, This monologue is so beautiful. But then the acting, like it seems a little over the top, kind of like B-movie-ish. And maybe this will be a cult classic because it's a little bit B-movie. But um, anyway, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening. When I tell you, so the division, when it comes to the division that the synopsis was referring to, the division comes in the end and it's more so... It's more so the folks who are infected spiritually and also physically with this illness under the mask of religion. And it gets warped and twisted like all religion, religious practices do when ego gets involved and our own thinking of what 
is like our own. Anyway, when, when people get involved, it becomes more about what we think than what it actually is or allowing people to make up their own mind. It gets, it gets convoluted and weird. Um, and it's just like the, the, the worst version of convoluted and weird you can think of. Right. And so in the midst of this, there are angels, an angel that's introduced in here. And it's a very interesting concept too. And you just got to watch it to see it. Now it's a slow burn. You guys, it's slow. It, it can, it's seven episodes. It's slow. And then when it picks up, it's, it's up and it stays there. Um, and then the end is not something that you wouldn't expect, but it's just the march to that end is kind of heartbreaking because you know, it's about to happen. Um, but anyway, the division really, yeah, the division, division comes between the spiritually and physically infected and those that aren't. Um, and there's a lot of conversations about religion in here, but not even, not deep ones. There's another beautiful moment that happens uh, with Raul Kali's character um, and Sheriff Hassan. Sheriff Hassan and his son struggle back and forth throughout the whole seat. Well, most of the, the episode talking about faith and Sheriff Hassan is trying to be a voice of reason. And I do love the different representations of faith or non-faith, right? Because all, the, all of those exist. Non-faith, m- plural faith, um, questioning, different ways of practice, like all of that exists in our real life. And I, I appreciate that it's represented on this island, despite the fact that there isn't a heck of a lot of diversity in this thing at all. Like, I just don't get how Netflix continues to just pour money into projects that are pale. Like you put a few light brown people and then one Asian man in it and call it like, oh, we've done a good job. The rest of the cast is beige. It's wild to me. And then you start talking about the diversity in, you know, where they're from, where these beige people are from. It's wild to me. But stepping back, this is an interesting story. It's just how much more rich could it have been had you got some more nuance? Had you had time to like we didn't even the only time we saw Sheriff Hassan's wife was in pictures because she died of a cancer. And we don't see we don't see him go to the mainland. We never leave the island. Everybody else leaves the island. We don't leave the island. I don't think we leave the island. No, we never I don't think we ever we'd never leave the island. If other people leave the island, we don't. Except the only time we're not on that island is when we're with Riley at the scene of the accident, the crime, where he took the life of that teenager. That's the only time we leave the island. Um, and then at the end, when we're in a boat. Well, and well, two times, three times we leave the island. In the very beginning, when we're not even on it. And then when we're on it, we leave it twice, but we're all on boats. And actually, we're still not, we're, while we're off the island with the character, we're not far from the island. So ah, it's just so weird how you can make an entire movie and be totally comfortable trying to eke out diversity among the same we have seen nuances time and again of how different let me t- let me let me start over I want to see different stories because people of color are everywhere. People of color are in New England. Black people are in New England. 
Asian people are in New England. Indigenous people are in New England. Come on, like we can do this. We can we can dig in here and do better. Um, and we can still tell a good story too, because what ends up happening? It, this feels a little ham-fisted, because again, there are good moments in this thing, but not enough. It, it's it, they're not enough. It's entertaining. It's just you know read Siskel and Ebert, read the other reviews, because let's let's you know if you go back to the reviews, what we know is that by and large overwhelmingly it's a 7.8 out of 10 which is not terrible on imdb 91 percent fresh on rotten tomatoes again very good if we dig in a little deeper we find that it's audience score is 75 percent which I, I guess i'm coming to understand that the audience score is always lower than the average score and um Hold on, how can I get to where I want to go with this thing? I was trying to, oh, critics consensus, so it's 91. So the consensus pretty much, I believe, matches what I feel to be true, which is um, it's an ambitious meditation on grief and faith that is as gorgeous, again, with the cinematography, as it is unsettling. Midnight Mass is slow boil, it's very slow, um, is a triumph of terror that will leave viewers shaking and thinking long after the credits roll. I don't know how much you're going to be thinking, about anything except the questions about faith that they bring up, the questions about death and dying that they bring up. Outside of that, I don't, I think you might be, you you may question, although it's a question that has already been posed before, which is what happens when somebody takes, when somebody looks a little too hard into the sun? What happens when someone looks a little too, stares a little too long in the void and they become, they take this seed and they mean well with the seed. They mean to plant a, and, and grow a, a plant that is going to thrive, but ultimately it turns into a disaster. What happens when you try to do your own thing? When you, when you basically when your purity becomes tainted, like when you when your pure intentions end up tainting the thing that you're trying to save, support, what have you, like Paul Hill, if you're watching Father Paul Hill, he he like asked that question. He starts that question. There actually, yeah, there's a ton of questions actually, but his the biggest one around faith is, I really want to rejuvenate folks. I really want them to understand that you know, there's divine power even in this world, but the way that he does it, the way that he goes about it, leads to the most terrible conclusion, the most terrible endings. So anyway, watch the show. It's a slow burn. There are pieces missing out of it. Overall though, it is interesting to say the very least. And it's a good way to bring in spooky season. It's also a good way to kind of Again, that conversation about death and dying is beautiful. And if for nothing more, that should be acknowledged. It should be acknowledged. It really should. Anyway, I've talked long enough. This episode isn't long. Anyway, um, hope you were listening while you were doing a project or something like that or just zoning out. So um, if you have an opportunity to watch the show, watch the show. And if you have any thoughts about it, send me, um, click the show notes and, and send me a, a voice message. Um, I will listen to it. I will respond to it if it's positive. 
Also, if you like this show or like any other episodes that I've released, go ahead and share those with anyone that you think might dig it too. And then also leave a positive uh, review, five stars, four or five stars, whatever you believe, um, on the Purple app, um, the Apple app, and I'll read it. Or actually leave a review wherever you listen to this thing and I will find it and I will read it. All right. Again, I talked enough. All right. Until next time. Take care.